you would please open the Bible to um, the first of two readings, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, which you'll find on pages 810 or 800, eight, and 811 in the Pew Bible. That's Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. These are the last few verses of uh, this paragraph from the um, Sermon on the Mount. Keep your finger there in pages 810 and 811. And also flip over a few pages further to um, chapter, Matthew chapter 27, verse 38 to 44, which you'll find on page 834. I'm going to be reading from both these sections of Matthew's gospel. If you would please stand. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And now Matthew chapter 27, verses 38 to 44. This is page 834. Then two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're very conscious as we open our Bibles today that we are truly on holy, holy ground. 
Now, Father, to read today of what Jesus taught us and then what Jesus did for us. Holy Father, please send your gracious, sovereign spirit upon us. Pry open our cold, resistant hearts and give us grace, Father, that we might hear your voice as you speak to us through the Bible, that we might believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it, Father. For Jesus, your Son's sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you don't mind, uh, put a page of the bulletin or something on page 834, because we're going to be coming back to that in just a minute. But uh, we're going to start over in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38, down to the end of the paragraph, uh, verse 48. Um, this has been a crazy week for me. I, I know I, I, I was listening to some of my recent sermons, and I often say this. Uh, but it has been a very, very interesting week, uh, a week full of uh, amazing, challenging uh, things that I've read about, heard about, seen on television, and, and experienced in other ways. Um, Monday morning, I was on my way to my Greek class when uh, the phone rang, my cell phone rang, and it was Laura from the church office telling me that something had just come in over the news that there had been a shooting at a PCA church in Nashville, a place called Covenant Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And when I got to the seminary, I pulled up the news story and read uh, with such horror what had happened that morning at a school as children were gathering for the day and they'd come in and were in their classes and a shooter had come in and uh, had killed six people, three adults, uh, the, the principal, uh, the custodian, uh, and a woman who was just their substitute teaching that day. And to add to the story, the horror of the story, I read that three nine-year-olds had been killed at their school. Um, including one nine-year-old, uh, Hallie Scruggs, who I did not know personally, but Hallie had been baptized in Dallas at a PCA church not far from here. Just a couple of years ago, she was baptized at that church. And uh, I recognized the name Scruggs. The pastor of Covenant Church in Nashville is named Chad Scruggs. The reason I recognized his name is Chad used to work here in Dallas. He was a teaching elder on staff at Park City's Presbyterian Church. And before that, he'd been an RUF minister at SMU. He'd been a part of our presbytery for years. I knew Chad. I did not know him well, but I knew Chad. I had the highest regard for him. And my son, John, actually knew Chad better. Uh, John used to work at Park City's and had the opportunity to interact with uh, Chad and had, uh, again, the highest respect for Chad as a as a preacher and a teacher and a man who sought to walk with the Lord. So it was, it was striking that here was a PCA church a few hundred miles from here, pastored by someone I actually knew, and all of this tragedy had happened that morning. We've all sadly gotten so used to these stories. I mean, uh, someone showed me a list of all the school shootings. It is, it is horrible. 
how often this has happened, just dozens and dozens of times, where someone would go into a school and kill any number of students and staff. I guess what made this one so powerful was it really hit home. I, I knew these people. Maybe you felt that same way. And the more I read, uh, the more it hit home. Um, and I realized that, okay, the way I feel right now is the way hundreds and thousands of people have felt as they've seen this horrible violence find its way even into the church. So it was a terrible, terrible week thinking about all that. Uh, on Tuesday, I went to a prayer meeting over at Park Cities. They, they knew Chad very well. They loved him. He was well known to the congregation. So they hastily pulled together a, a prayer meeting uh, like the one we're going to have uh, later this morning. Uh, they pulled together a prayer meeting. It was magnificent with amazing music. Uh, but the, the highlight was the, the prayer time with the people, not, not just the pastors. The pastors were there and did a wonderful job leading it. But to hear the people of the church with tears in their eyes, calling out to the Lord for these people that they knew and loved. It's a very, very powerful thing to sit through. And all of that was swirling in my head as I was preparing a sermon on a passage where Jesus says, among other things, love your enemies. Suddenly it took on a very personal meaning to me. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is the conclusion to this particular part of the Lord's uh, sermon on the mount, most famous sermon he preached. Uh, it, it sums up, if you will, a lot of what he's been telling us. Um, it has that upheld and fulfilled significance. I'm going to say more about that in a moment. But in these two sections, uh, one, the ESV editors have labeled retaliation. That's verses 36 to 42, retaliation. And the second part, love your enemies, verses 43 to 48. Uh, two closely connected, interwoven, but distinct aspects of what Jesus has to say. I'd like for us to think a little bit about this idea of, of, of upholding. Uh, right through this section, all of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is focusing us on what the law, what the community, what the people of Israel had said, and what he said. And what he does over and over again is he, he, he upholds the law. Jesus does not back away from the law. Jesus upholds the law. So let me just tell you today as we open our Bibles, uh, what Jesus has to say here has very specific, concrete application in our lives. Very down-to-earth application to the way you and I live our lives. Uh, Jesus, in, in verse 38, quotes an, an Old Testament passage that had been wildly misunderstood, wildly misapplied. Uh, Jesus uh, looks at this passage, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, here, Jesus is not rejecting what the Old Testament had to say. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's going to go on to explain what this passage actually means. 
uh, the passage, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was not meant to be a, a call to, to get even and a, and a call to punish people. And uh, if they uh, made you lose a tooth, then it was appropriate for you to make them lose a tooth. If they made you lose an eye, then it was appropriate for you to make them lose an eye. And the principle went on. It was sort of like a quid pro quo. You did that to me, I'm going to do it to you. This never-ending cycle of retaliation. And all too often in our world, we see this cycle of retaliation where people just want to get even with each other about the last bad thing that happened to them. And we see this cycle very often. Uh, we certainly see it in the headlines in the newspapers, wars that seem to be interminable, groups of people that seem unable to get along with each other because they're always playing get even, get revenge, retaliate. But actually the, the passage Jesus is referring to was meant to be a limitation on the idea of retaliation. It's meant to be a limitation. What it's actually saying is uh, keep your response in scale, proportionate. That, that's really what it was intended to do in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if someone made you lose a tooth, you were justified in killing them. You're, you could take your revenge as far as you felt like you needed to take your revenge. And in the Old Testament, what we learn is God was instructing his people in their early instruction that it should be proportionate. They should never allow things to escalate because things tend to escalate. You get a little mad, you respond. They get a little mad and respond. You get a little madder and respond. They get a little madder and respond. And next thing you know, you're, you're trying to kill each other. And that's not only true at the level of headlines and wars and, and all kinds of cultural interactions. It can be true at the personal level. It can be true among people who uh, are, find themselves unable to break out of this pattern of retaliation. I mean, I've, I've lived in uh, situations where friends or even family members get crossways and, and they seem unable to get along and the, the ugliness just grows and spreads. It's hideous. Maybe you've endured something like that. Well, Jesus is saying to us that that's not to be the way we live our lives. We're, we're not to be people who live our lives based on that kind of intensifying retaliation. In fact, he chooses some very down-to-earth illustrations. Look at what he says Verse 39 and 40, he says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, that is, who is doing evil to you. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Uh, Turn the other cheek. I mean, it's a, an expression that's made its way into our culture. We all know that expression. We probably had opportunity to think about that. We might have even said it to someone else or to ourselves. Turn the other cheek. It has all kinds of very, very down-to-earth applications. And it really is a simple idea that if someone does something evil, mean, cruel to you, and your impulse is to retaliate, Jesus says, do the thing you're not inclined to do, which is to turn the other cheek. They wanted one thing of value to you, 
let them have the other thing of value to you as well. Now, I don't believe what Jesus is doing here is giving us some kind of rule that, that we're not supposed to defend ourselves or defend others or that we don't stand up for our rights in a court of law. What he's actually giving us is a, a way of relating to other people, a way of thinking about other people, and how we engage other people. There is a place for self-defense, absolutely. And the Christian life acknowledges that. There is a place for standing up for your rights appropriately. But what Jesus is telling us is that even when you're standing up for your rights, even when you're asserting the truth as you see it, you're not to do it with that heart of intensifying anger, the vitriol that grows and and infects our relationships. I mean, I have the opportunity just this week uh, to figure out how to respond to something that has been said or done that, that I don't agree with at all. I don't think what Jesus is saying is that we have no, we're not to make any response ever. I think there's a place for an appropriate response. There's a place for asserting the truth as you see it. Absolutely. But what Jesus is telling me and what I think he's telling all of us is the way we do that is not to be motivated on hatred or anger. In fact, it's much better to be quiet and think and pray over a period of time. You know the old expression, count to ten? Well, there's some logic to that. There's some spiritual logic to that. Because if you think about it, and if you're a Christian and you pray about it, there's the opportunity for God to deal with all those emotions, all that vitriol, all that anger that comes out of us. So Jesus is giving us some very simple, concrete things that we can do when you and I are put upon. Whether it's the the simple act of turning the other cheek or whether it's engaging with a court or or engaging with some kind of claims on your rights, your property. In all those things, you and I are to have attitudes of humility and we're to seek peace, we're to seek the Lord, we're to seek counsel from one another and only then are we to respond. Now there may be situations you're going through in your life right now where the impulse is to strike out To make them hurt. They hurt you perhaps. The temptation is I want to make them hurt. I want them to feel the way I feel about it. It's a very human thing to do. And it lies at the core of so much evil. Uh, Jesus actually begins this section over in chapter 5 verse 21. Talking about the connection between something as simple as being angry and murder. Well, those things are connected because of this principle of retaliation. They grow and grow and grow in our hearts. They fester. And what starts out as one little thing over time can become a big thing and it can even lead to violence. It can even lead to hatred. One of the terribly sad things that has come up about the killing in Nashville is that the person who did the shooting actually once attended that school. A young woman named Audrey Hale. I don't know anything about Audrey Hale except what I've read, and what I have read breaks my heart. Uh, the early news reports, you may have seen them as I did. The early news reports 
didn't make it clear whether it was a male or a female or a transgender female or a male who was becoming a female or a female who was becoming a male. But what became clear very quickly was this was a deeply troubled person. And in her mind, and I don't know her story, but in her mind, her frustration and her anger at this little school, perhaps the church that stood with it, maybe the pastor, it's hard to know exactly what was going on, but it had, it had festered in her heart. It had gotten worse and worse and worse. It drove her to mounting anger. And she would say things. She wrote this manifesto. I'll be interested to hear what the manifesto says, but I, I, I predict it will show this escalating anger. And it took a young woman who had gone to a Christian elementary school to the point of such hatred and such intense anger that she went with a gun and killed six people. Can you imagine? Three of them nine-year-old kids. How on earth, how on earth can you explain that except the very thing Jesus is talking about? So here's some very, very practical advice. We're to pull ourselves out of that that spiraling intensification of anger. And we we don't wait until we're a little bit into it. We pull ourselves out of it soon and early. And that's growing wisdom. That's wisdom I want to have in my life. It's wisdom I want to see in our church and in my family. I want us to be people who learn to resist this temptation of anger and hatred and violence. So Jesus says, don't do that. If if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So he, he takes it across the whole range of these human experiences. And he actually counsels. Again, he's not giving us a rule book. He's giving us principles. I don't think the application of this is that you must feel in every case an obligation to give someone money if they ask you for money. Perhaps money is not what they most need. That's not loving to give them out of some rule-keeping attitude something that actually they don't need that might actually contribute to their continuing downward spiral. So he's not giving us a rule book, but he's giving us this principle and he takes it across this wide range of human experiences, everything from someone slapping you to someone suing you or trying to take something that belongs to you to interacting with you and and demanding of you something that you aren't necessarily interested in giving them. Across that wide range, Jesus counsels a, a change of heart. See, that's really what Jesus is getting at here. If we try to reduce the Sermon on the Mount to a list of rules, we will at least be very confused. And we might actually wind up causing more harm than good. Jesus is here giving us important principles that he upholds and he counsels us and he gives us this wisdom for you and me to hang on to in our life. And I I don't want to back away from it one little bit. And then in verse 43, he, he starts again talking about this idea of hate, anger, the very thing he's talked about over in 
uh, chapter 5, verse 21. He's, he starts talking about it again. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is a real twisting of what the uh, principle had been. They had taken the principle of loving your neighbor and they had turned that in through all kinds of legal manipulation to be justification for hating some people. Yes, love your neighbor, love the people who live near you, love the people who are like you, but you're forgiven for hating anybody else. However they might be your enemy, you're, you're permitted to hate them. Well, Jesus sets that also on its head. He gives us again wise words that we apply and live out. He says, I say to you, love your enemies. And what does that mean? Well, it means, among other things, pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. It's interesting. In first century Palestine, persecution wasn't a uh, theoretical possibility. It wasn't an abstraction. Persecution meant something. It meant you would be punished, that you might actually be penalized, imprisoned. You might even be killed. The Roman authorities were not above doing that when they persecuted And Jesus says, in the midst of that reality, which was very real for them, he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And he ties that, verse 45, to the relationship that we have with God who is in heaven, a father And that relationship he's going to go on to say a lot more about over in chapter 6. He's going to be describing this relationship. And it turns out the relationship Jesus is talking about, the context for all of this living, the context for all these decisions is in the Sermon on the Mount, the context of a relationship with God through Christ. So he actually says we're to love our enemies and pray for our enemies so that we may display, so that we may show forth, that we may truly be in the deepest sense sons of our Father who's in heaven. Because that same Father makes the sun shine for the the righteous and for the evil. That same Father shows mercy and kindness towards people who are evil. says, if you only love the people who love you, then what have you done? That Everybody does that. You know, Adolf Hitler had friends. Adolf Hitler had people he cared about. So if all we do is love the people who are kind to us, we are no better in any sense, that, in this sense at least, than someone like an Adolf Hitler or a Joseph Stalin. Pick your bad guy. If all we do is show kindness to people who are kind to us, then we're, we're no, bif- no different, no better in any way in our behavior than, than the, the worst person you can think of. And if all we do is, is love the people who love us, then the most base sinners, he uses the example of tax collector. He has a lot to say about tax collectors. Tax collectors were the perfect illustration in his day of someone who was so morally compromised and who used their uh, power over other helpless people 
So Jesus is saying, if all we do as his followers is love people who love us and are kind to people who are kind to us, then we're no better than the most morally compromised person they could think of. And if all we do is greet our brothers, if all we do is be nice to others in our community who are part of our church or our denomination or our faith, if if that's all we do is that we're kind to them, then how are we any different than the the nations, the Gentiles, the, the people of the world who did not know the goodness of God as Father. So he actually concludes in verse 48, you therefore, he says, speaking to the church, to his disciples in the hearing of these thousands of others, he says, you therefore, speaking to the disciples, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Could he possibly have set a higher standard than to say to the likes of you and me, be perfect like your heavenly father who has shown his love. You be perfect like he is perfect. He sets the highest possible standard and he means it. That should be our goal. That should be what we aim to do. It, It should affect the way we do everything. It should affect how we deal with disagreements. It should affect how we deal with people who hurt us or people who set out to persecute us. Our goal is is to try and respond and to to behave in a way such as God himself behaves and, and the Lord Jesus himself behaves. Those are our models. That's where we look to understand the kinds of things that we're called to do. He could not set a higher standard. But Jesus did not only uphold the law, he not only underscores these very real instructions to us, he not only says these things are truly to be your goal as individuals and as part of a community, these things really are to be your goal, but he also at the same time underscores that all of this is based on something else. The whole idea of repentance is based on something else. It is based on a a changed attitude. It's based on turning away from our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, our own self-centeredness. Repentance means to turn from that and turn towards Jesus. God in the flesh, turning towards him. And it's within that context It's within that context that now we seek to live a life worthy of that gospel, as Paul says in Philippians. Worthy of what Jesus has done for us. We're not trying to earn something. We're doing something because of what Jesus has already given us. And brothers and sisters, there's no better day to think about that than Palm Sunday. The day when the children greeted Jesus. And Will, you're exactly right. Hosanna means uh, save us. But it actually, it actually contains within it something a little more than that. It, it is save us, but it's actually saying Savior. The one who has saved us. The Savior. So these children, as they were calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us, save us, were in the same breath pointing towards Jesus as the one who would save us. 
And if you turn to Matthew chapter 27, just a few thoughts further as we close, that's exactly what Jesus came to Jerusalem to do. And exactly who Jesus showed himself to be. I just chose a few verses from the section on the crucifixion. In many years, I've, I've simply read the crucifixion story. Today, I'm choosing a couple of verses from the crucifixion story that illustrate the connection between what Jesus has to say to us about the way you and I live our lives and the way Jesus lived his life. Just look briefly at verse 38. When they had crucified him, they divided, sorry, verse 38, Uh, Two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. The children have been singing, save us, save us, save us. You're the savior. Here the adults are shouting out, You can't even save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the the cross. The chief priests, who always seem to get it wrong, with the scribes and elders, mocked Jesus, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He says he's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. They're mocking him. As he is preparing to die, as he is going to the cross, He is mocked, even at this point, by the robbers who are being crucified beside him. The whole crowd is depicted as hating Jesus, mocking Jesus, pouring insults on Jesus as he's preparing to die. Can you imagine a a more cruel, hateful, angry, vengeful, retaliatory thing hurling all of this on Jesus? How will Jesus respond? He who could summon legions of angels, who who could not only take himself down from the cross, but could save himself by calling upon legions of angels, holy ones, to descend and to engage in battle with those who were cruelly mocking him. That was within his power, a power you and I can't even imagine. But that was the power of him who went to the cross. The the power as the very son, the only begotten son of the living God. But as the king was dying, as the king was crucified, what was on his lips? Was it invective? Was him responding tit for tat. Him calling them names as they called him names. Him mocking them as they mocked him. No, Jesus' response was to go and do exactly what his father had sent him to do. And so in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And yielded up his spirit. You see what Jesus was doing on the cross. Reflects what he tells you and me to do. 
tells us to live our lives in a certain way and to deal with people we get angry at in a certain way. And then he goes on to show us what that actually looks like, what it can, what it can actually look like. You see, Jesus doesn't tell us to do anything that he himself doesn't do first. He doesn't call us to do anything that he is not prepared to do and what he has willingly done. And so that now, you and I who have been saved by Jesus, we seek to live our messed up, confused lives in this messed up and confused world in a way that reflects something of his love and mercy his generous grace, that we're to live our lives as little tiny imperfect reflections of him. So he is he's both the model and the motive for the Christian life. He's the model and the motive for the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, we will never do all that Jesus has done. But everything we do should reflect what he has done. Every decision we make, every response we have, reflects what our Savior has done. And that will percolate through our entire lives. It'll take a lifetime. It's not like you can snap your finger and do it tomorrow instantly, perfectly. It's a process. It's we learn, we grow, we change. We're taught by the Spirit who applies the Bible to our hearts and makes us day by day a little more like Jesus. And one day forward, one day forward, next day backwards a step or two. That's been my experience. But it's all about our seeking to follow Christ. One of the ways Jesus describes the Christian life is to take up our own cross and to follow him. And let me tell you, none of us will do it as perfectly as he did. But he gives us the privilege of walking behind him and seeking to show the world, the nations, what God is really like and inviting those who are enemies today, like we've all been, Inviting enemies to become friends and brothers and sisters to the same loving Heavenly Father through the same perfect Savior. Well, this Palm Sunday and going through Holy Week 2023, I, I want to I grow into that. Today when we have our prayer meeting, in just a minute, we're going to pray for those who do violence. There's nothing harder to do, especially when you care about the people who got hurt. Nothing harder to do. And yet, when we pray today, as they prayed at Park City, it was a beautiful thing to see. A church full of people who loved this family and loves this church. They prayed for those who did unspeakable evil. And we will too. Why? Because that's the Savior who we love, who has loved us 